1: Good Sunday afternoon, and welcome to Connecting the Dots with Dan Happel. And today we've got a really, really special guest coming on. Dr. Waleed Faris is an expert in the Middle East. Now, let me give you a little of his background. He was born and raised in Lebanon, educated there, uh, and came to the United States, I believe, when he was uh, around 28 or 29 years old, and uh, became an expert on international affairs, specializing in Middle Eastern affairs. He has uh, testified before Congress. He is—he uh, was a, one of the first appointees to the uh, Trump administration because of his expertise on the Middle East. He was also, uh, he's testified before the Senate, before the House, before Congress uh, on Middle Eastern affairs. He is a true expert in this field. He is also the uh, foreign affairs and Middle East expert with Newsmax. So this gentleman has got Uh, credentials you can't believe, and incidentally, he's written, uh, what, close to a dozen books uh, on top of everything else, so we're really honored, Dr. Ferris, we're really honored to have you as a guest, and uh, we're really honored to hear your perspective on all the things that are going on right now, because I know that you are a true conservative Uh, I know that you have an opinion that differs considerably from uh, some of the crap that's been floating around all over the place. And for that reason, we are very much looking forward to uh, hearing your experience and your understanding about everything that is happening now in, well, really in the world, but certainly in the Middle East, and so many of the problems. And you had a quote that I absolutely have to uh, mention. You said, uh, jihad leads to Islamophobia, Oh, yeah. And Islamophobia leads to jihad. Both must end. I think that is absolutely fabulous. You're absolutely right. We've got to quit pushing all the buttons on all sides of the issue that make us want to uh, have a genocidal world. We need to realize that uh, humanity is on the verge of extinction if we don't get our head out of our rear end and start doing the right thing. Uh, Dr. Ferris, welcome to the program.
2: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this invitation. Uh, When I got the invitation first, the first thing that got me excited, guess what? It wasn't geopolitics. It was Montana. The place I like the most, the place where I'm spending time every summer, every fall, I just go and spend some time on west of you, and eventually I may become a Montanan. So that was my first interest. And second, of course, I I read and and I saw your achievements in the media, and it's really an honor to me uh to be with you this afternoon. Uh, and I'll be more than happy to address uh, all these topics from the most you know, from the most difficult ones and dramatic ones, as we see, right, uh, from the Middle East, even to to here, to our borders, uh, we are we are coming very close to a catastrophe. So uh, thank you for this opportunity. I'm glad that we will have the time, and I'm glad that I will be meeting you for the first time, and I hope there will be other times in the future.
1: Well, I'm quite sure there will be, and uh, incidentally, I, I look forward to meeting you here in Montana as well. Uh, we've got a a ranch in Southwest Montana in a beautiful, beautiful area. Uh, my wife and I thank God every day that we have the the uh, have been blessed with the opportunity to live in such a beautiful place. So, and I see that Giselle is on with us already. And yeah. uh, uh, so, uh, Giselle, I want to uh, welcome you. I know you're going to be talking with our, uh, our fans, with our followers on the subject of your father's incarceration as a political prisoner in Iran and the theocracy that has really destroyed much of that country uh, and all the problems that we've got. And and frankly, meddling is, is one of the biggest problems. Uh, I'm sure that you read by uh, my uh, announcement of the program, but part of the problems we have is that it seems like we've got uh, big countries and organizations like the UN, and what we need to do is we need to start getting. Uh, I guess we need to start getting government back in the hands of the people that Mm -hmm. are the most affected by it. And uh, certainly theocratic regimes like Iran are a perfect example of how that uh, has to change. And uh, frankly, Giselle, we have a very similar problem now in the United States of America because we have... A uh, an administration that has weaponized much of the uh, Justice Department and uh, different federal agencies against American people who uh, stand up as conservative patriots and believers in our Constitution. So we've got a lot of problems. It's going to happen all over the world, and I'm just glad we can have this discussion because, uh, Dr. Ferris, you are— you are truly someone who has a, a probably a better understanding of the history of the middle east and how everything has evolved than anybody i've ever spoken with and i i have some friends from uh from that part of the world i i worked with an architect from iran uh back, you oh, 50 years ago when I was in the service uh, working as an architect in Washington, D.C. So uh, I'm, I'm very familiar with uh, some of the issues, but I really want a freshener from you. So I've spoken too much. I want to turn it over to you. Welcome to the program and I think a good place to start is maybe kind of a quick overview of some mm-hmm. of the things that are in the headlines today, and then maybe we can go back and touch on some of the history and some of the foundational information that, uh, that builds this whole dynamic that we're living through today. Absolutely. Again, thank you so
2: much, and I would like also to welcome... Uh, Our good friend and partner in action now, uh, the young Giselle, who has a story to tell. I want to put the introduction to her story as I'm moving forward in the history of the region. And since you've asked about, let's start from today. Well, very easy. It's Gaza. That's where we're going to be starting. But it's not just Gaza. There are a lot of bad things happening in the Middle East that are affecting our interests in the middle east we still have troops in syria and in iraq and elsewhere our friends and allies in the region uh including obviously israel but also you know minorities christian minorities jews minorities these are friends and allies but eventually they are going to be affecting us okay. see th- th- it's going to this session is going to give me the opportunity to link up everything so yes the fronts the battlefield seems to be in the middle east But look what has been happening here over the past two months, those protests. We call them the Hamas protests. These are not Hamas, just protests. These are jihadi protests. And they have been going on, they have been networked, they have been organized for many years now. We have seen a series of protests, including if I may dare and say the summer of 2020, and I can see a similarity with the organizers, with the funding, and to the south of all of us i mean, i'm in washington you're in montana but the southern border is an absolute major national security national safety problem as we speak and it's all connected uh, those forces that are battling us and fighting our allies in the region including arab moderates and the abraham accord people you know from yemen i'm going to take you to yemen and up to iraq to syria to iran to the nukes of iran And all the way down to Gaza and Israel, it is all one cobweb. We call them a cobweb, a web of relationships. Mm -hmm. So if I may, I would say, let's start with Gaza, where the action is today. And then we'll visit a little bit uh, the south of the Red Sea, where the Houthis, those uh, Iranian militias, are active. We go a little bit to the north. Uh, That would be Lebanon or southern Lebanon with the Hezbollah militias, who, who could become the next Gaza at any moment, and then we'll visit Southern Syria and visit um, Iraq and look at the impact that this war, it's it's gonna be a long war, by the way, is gonna have on us. It's gonna be a war that's gonna survive our elections, by the way, this is something I'd like to visit with you. I don't do domestic politics, but in this case, well, Mm -hmm. if we have the same administration or the same, you know, let's say political bloc uh, being renewed here, we're gonna have some major effects in the world and if we have the chance of a alternative administration a different uh, administration then we may have a chance to uh, confront the threats in the middle east so gaza the first question i would ask and stop me if there is any you know imminent question i'll be more than happy to uh, to, to di- digress on that why would hamas out of nowhere conduct what i call a jihad genocidal massacre you know, out of nowhere into the Negev desert in Israel. I mean, they could have done it for many, many years ago. What would have stopped them? Nothing. So why did they choose that? Why did Hamas choose uh, that time of the year to conduct this attack? Why did they choose to make it genocidal, to kill women and children, and also grab a number of hostages in the hundreds and take them into Gaza? Uh, You know, they deserve, we deserve uh, answers. Now, the answer is not in Gaza the answer is not in the hands of Hamas. Hamas is an organization, a militia, a terrorist organization, obviously, but it is funded, it is controlled, I would say, and even if the administration's analysts not agree with me or they are very uh, you know, hesitant to agree, it is controlled by the Iran regime. And that would compel me to describe something wider so we could understand what's happening in Gaza. The Iran regime is the problem, is the mothership. It has been, you said you've been for many, many decades observing those events. I'm sure you saw the Iran before the revolution or the coup, I call it the Islamic coup. And of course you saw, and then I joined you a couple of decades later and we saw the evolution of that Islamic Republic, which has been the source after the Soviet Union has collapsed, had collapsed of most of the terror organizations uh, with the exception of probably Al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood, which... Their focal point has been Afghanistan. So eventually, we really are dealing with with uh, two dragons connected. One sitting in Afghanistan, that's the Taliban, the Sunni radical Al Qaeda, ISIS network, and of course Iran and their uh, and their and and their uh, organizations. Now, there were multiple reasons for why Iran ordered Hamas to conduct this type of atrocity. Reason number one is that Israel and Saudi Arabia were coming very close from signing an agreement, which would have opened the path for Saudi Arabia to move in and become a partner in the Abraham Accords. The only way to do it, and I've witnessed enough events because I lived in the Middle East during my home country's war of 15 years, I saw everything from A to Z. That's why you feel I have this experience, because we lived them. Mm -hmm. We know exactly what the tactics are, the strategies are. So, first goal was to destroy the rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Israel. This has actually been partially achieved. Now the Saudis are concerned they're not going to do anything before Israel settles the matter of Hamas. Reason number two, very important for us, is that would give Iran the opportunity to start attacking our troops in Syria and Iraq, and that's exactly what they're doing. Because they they have calculated, they may miscalculate, but they have calculated that eventually the American public, backed by the Iran lobby, therefore all these protests at the end of the day are funded by the Iran deal and by the Iran regime. It's not a coincidence that you would print or you would produce 100,000 Palestinian flag and called them Gaza overnight. They were ready overnight, the demonstration started. So the second reason is to attack us in Syria and in Iraq and they're doing it and they are going to be escalating. But the third and the most important one and Giselle later will be talking about it. The Iran regime has been under the pressure of what we have witnessed all of us since September of last year, which is the Iran revolution. Something is cooking, something is boiling inside Iran that the Iran regime is very nervous about. They are afraid, they are scaring everybody in the Middle East and part of us here, but they are afraid of something coming from the inside. Civil society in Iran is rising. Half of the civil society are women. Women are courageous in Iran. We have an example with us here on the panel. And they are um, not stopping. They are uh, The regime is killing their youth, the minorities, women, girls. They're not stopping. So the best way for the Iran regime, the best way to crush the internal revolution is to wage an outside war. Because now where are all our focus is on Gaza and the Israelis? And the machine, the propaganda machine is focusing on the Israelis are killing civilians and so on and so. Everybody has forgotten that the Iran regime is massacring the Iran. And as we will discuss later, a little bit later, uh, over the past uh, few months, or at least since October 7, while we were focusing on Gaza, the regime has been killing, uh, executing one Iranian dissident after another, one detainee after another. So that's what's happening in terms of the big picture. Let me add one more, and then we could, we could have a short discussion on that now. Mm-hmm. The Israelis made a decision because many people in America don't understand the Israeli decision and why there is no ceasefire. Well, here's why. The Israelis understood that if they do not dismantle Hamas once and for all, it's, it's like cancer. It's going to come back. It's going to metastasize. And if it, come back time, if it comes back this time, comes back, it's going to also mobilize the Hamas cells in the West Bank. That's near the heart of Israel. That's near jo- uh, Jerusalem. And if they're not you know, dismantled, then Hezbollah, Hezbollah is five times the size of Hamas and sitting in the north. They will all crunch on Israel. And we can see the signs that all these militias are ordered by a big orchestra chief in in Iran, asking the militia in Yemen to lob some missiles, some ballistic missiles, and now they're attacking the international waterways. That's a different matter I would like to talk about because that is going to impact our economy. So the orchestra is in Iran. The battlefield is in Gaza this uh, government in israel will not stop before dismantling hamas but then you're going to have major questions who will replace hamas it's something that i'd like to discuss with you what to do with hezbollah what to do with iran which which is which brings me to the point of of departure this is not going to be a short war Mm
0: -hmm.
2: this is a long conflict we are involved our domestic politics will be impacted it's going to be even beyond uh, our elections into next year, into the following year. I will stop here from this first uh, volley. If you want, so if you have any question, any thought, we could uh, we could discuss them.
1: Well, that that's a great lead-in for this discussion. Um, I I know that the failure by uh, by the United States uh, during the Jimmy Carter administration, uh, when we failed to support the Shah, when we failed to support uh, Reza Pavlavi, the Shah, and allowed the theocracy to take over the, uh, the country of Iran, that was a huge, huge mistake. That was an absolute uh, nightmare of a mistake on the part of the United States because very few people realize at the time that that happened, Iran was the or I should say Iran. I, I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> Two countries. One is called Iran, one Iran. As yeah. my students, American students make a mistake always. Iran sure. or Iran?
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll say Iran. <laughs> anyway, uh, b- part of the problem was because it was a, a much more Western country than just about any regime in the Middle East, and it was very... Uh, very open. It was a very open society, even though the Shah had his brother and the secret police. Uh, compared to what's going on there today, it was uh, it was like child's play. Yes, there were some problems, uh, but frankly, we've been meddling in the Middle East for far too long. And that's caused an awful lot of the problems that we're dealing with today as past issues. Now, another one, and I'm going to mention this, and then I, I'm, I'm going to turn it back to you. Uh, the other one was George W. Bush uh, going into Iraq and, uh, and attacking uh, uh, Saddam Hussein's regime because he was a a stalemate he was a spoiler in the middle east that was keeping the theocracy in iran from really taking over the the whole middle east and that was a tragic tragic mistake that the united states got sucked in to that uh little nightmare because of very very uh, bad uh, uh intelligence information on the part of uh the, the Bush administration, but I think part of it too was because his dad had left uh, Saddam in power and uh, they started to regret that. But I'm, I'm going to turn it back over to you because I want you to maybe address some of those issues. It's a big deal. It, it was
2: the biggest deal that actually led actually led to engaging us in the Middle East in the Iraq war while the actual real threat, the Islamic Republic of Iran was sitting and watching. I mean, you you can't have that. I mean, America, come on, defeated the Soviet uh, Union by multiple ways in the Cold War, and we are defeated by the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, who are medieval in their behavior. Yes, we were drawn to a war in Iraq, while actually the real enemy was used us to go in by the way, because I lived it one day after day. I was at the Pentagon as an advisor, uh, sometimes at the White House in 2003. actually that was the reason for why I used to live in Florida by the way. And after 9/11 I started to go on national media. who are the jihadists? Who's Osama bin Laden? you know, we have been so badly educated, our classrooms for years and years and years. So now who who gets out from the classroom? who graduates? Those are gonna go to the newsroom. Those are gonna go to the war room. There is a a link, I published a whole book on it. It's called The War of Ideas. And that book explains how the bad advice that our decision makers at all levels, from medium level all the way to the upper one to the White House, have been making mistakes because those who are helping them, those who are providing them with, with, not just with the information, I mean, also, uh, this is a very important opportunity you're giving me to explain something that the American public doesn't really fully understand, which is when we corrupt the analysts, when the analysts are corrupt in the classroom, corrupt in the sense that they don't understand what is the meaning of jihadism, they don't understand what's the meaning of humanism, then they are the ones. And I have lectured and given seminars and worked with thousands and thousands of national security and intelligence analysts. I was a contractor with government for 10 years, 12 years. So I know that the analysts, if you influence them, they could influence the decision at the end of the day. And let's say, I think you have mentioned this, that the Iran lobby has been been consistent in trying to influence, including our bureaucracy, including I mean, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal. It's not there anymore. I mean, uh, people are not talking about it, about how currently serving in the Pentagon and the State Department, you have Iranian-American analysts who are in communication with the Iran regime. So when the Oval Office asks for a file and for opinion, who's opining? The people who are in communication with that regime. You know, I know that you you think like me in terms of how deep the influence is in our own bureaucracy, but that's one example. So back quickly to the issue of Iraq. The, the intelligence agencies, the collection by itself, the NSA, the other agencies on the lower level, they collect information. They don't opine about this information. There are 100 tanks here, there are 20 planes here. They get you the information. It's when that information travels up to the analyst level and to some decision makers that it could be changed. And by the time it goes to the Oval Office or the other you know, uh, positions in government, there is lobbying. There is the power of lobbying. It's, it is part of our political system, but it has been corrupted at one point because lobbying is linked to money and financial interests. I don't need to lecture on this one, you know it as much as I do. So the decision on Iraq or the non-decision on other matters in the Middle East is linked to Washington. We go back, the problem has been in Washington, it's gonna continue to be in Washington, and any attempt by any political force in the United States to change it, there will be an uprising against them. And I mean, we saw what happened between 2016 and 2020. I don't want to go into the details. There was an uprising by a bureaucracy that didn't want to see foreign policy changed, and the American public is is opposed to this. But what can the American public do if you know they elect and then they don't get the results that they wanted? But I'm going too far here, so. Yes, not, really. not really. I know that that's what I mean, you want to go, but I'll just give you the hints that would confirm what you're talking about from an international perspective, from a foreign perspective. And my my most recent book, The Iran uh, Imperialist Republic, which is the most current book, has three chapters, eight, nine, and 10, that talks about the influence of the Iran lobby inside inside our country. And people would ask me, but... There have always been lobbies, yeah. There have always been lobbies who had money. I agree with you, but this is the first time in the history of the United States, the modern time of the United States, that an enormous amount of money has been circulating so large that nobody can stop it, nobody can stop its influence. And they ask me, where is that money is coming from? Let's do the quiz right now. Well, it's coming simply from the Iran deal. Ladies and gentlemen... Mm-hmm. When we send $150 billion as of 2015, right? When the Obama administration signed the agreement, there is something I tried to warn members of Congress, uh, ladies and gentlemen, there is a big deal happening. When we send $150 billion to the Iran regime, are you sure that nothing is gonna come back from the $150 billion? We have enough scandals in this country that talks about the 10%. Let's take a 10% as a broker. 10% 10% of $150 billion coming back into our system. That's $15 billion. That can change all the policies. That can buy all the influence that you could even imagine. I don't want to name names because that could be a legal matter, but media, academia, and and, and beyond that, that has been our problem. That's why I said at the beginning, it's not just about the fight going on in the Middle East. It is creating an influence inside us and they are using this influence once you have that amount of money they are opening the border in the south that money among other monies is opening the border they're bringing more people the more people they bring they could do those violent demonstrations violent demonstrations so now the middle east is actually the radical forces of the middle east are inside our borders and try to change change the government of the united states and all that was in my book so I would say I would say we need to take a look at the middle east from a different perspective from now on it's not just foreign policy it has become national security
1: I think that is probably one of the most refreshingly honest discussions that I've heard in a long time uh that that I I am very impressed <laughs> I really am because one of the things that gets glossed over is all the complexities and how so much of this always boils back to the same thing. Who's paying for it? Where's Mm -hmm. the money coming from? And what is that money doing? It always ends up in the same scenario. A handful of people um, or a big government, a a big contributor, ends up with an undue amount of influence, and it's because the system has built in so much corruptibility that uh, it it's almost unstoppable at this point. And you you mentioned the southern border. Incidentally, my wife and I typically spend our winters in Arizona. Uh, we had a house down there that we sold last summer. It was south of Tucson. The reason we sold it is because of the nightmare that is now overwhelming Southern Arizona. And we just felt like it was a good time to get out uh, while the getting was good. But uh, normally we spend our winters down there. So Mm -hmm. I'm very familiar with what's going on on the border. And um, I appreciate your honesty about that. On that point, if I may add one thing, because once
2: we think border we think about these NGOs or lobbies who are in fact organizing. People do not leave Central America and just walk, start walking, Right. This is not the Bible here. People are organized. And there are other people who are funding. And when I was advising uh, the Trump team at the time, I mentioned that a defense of our border is not done on the Rio Grande, that's too late once they get to the Rio Grande, if you don't have a 50 mile, 200 miles. I said, our defense, I mean, when we were attacked in New York, we went to Afghanistan, just to make sure that this is not gonna happen. And we failed now because of the current administration that you know took us into a nightmare. But my point was, we need to go stop it in Central America. And we have allies. We have some forces on the ground. Some of the countries are saying, you know, if you help us, we'll help you, we can stop it. I mean, this is something that local Latin Americans can, can take care of. And the beginning of the relationship between the Trump administration and even the left-leaning Mexican government for a while, because Trump knew how to handle these matters, all business at the end of the day, it's all about cutting deals. But then the flood started after the end of the Trump administration, started and multiplied because the administration and these far-left organizations who have a lot of influence in this administration, not everybody is far-left, but the far-left is far be- You know, above all the powers that exist now in this administration. They have connected with the far-left radical, I call them the Stalinists and the Che Guevaraists in Latin America, but far beyond the horizon, even those organizations are funded through Venezuela by the Iran deal. You, you release $1 billion, just $1 billion into Venezuela, into these networks, you're going to have millions of people being empowered and organized by these radicals. And you add, of course, the cartel, and you get what you see. We have an open wound on our southern border, completely open wound. If we want to reverse it, even if you're going to get a different administration, let's call it a Republican administration or an administration that understands it, it's going to take 10 years. Mm -hmm. process, not easy. The same could be said about inside the United States, the penetration by the radicals, by the jihadists, 10 years. Why? Because 10 years ago we were in 2013. It passed so quickly, right? 2013 is yesterday. Had we made decisions in 2013, but of course we couldn't because Obama was in charge, because the administration at the time, they were the allies of the radicals, or at least they partners with the radicals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I I would say, let's go back to the mothership the Iran regime, because it looks like we have been sending that money to the regime and the regime has been using that money both in the Middle East and in the United States. So if we ask the question, what can we do to stop that regime from meddling in our affairs and in the affairs of our allies and Israel and Hamas, the answer is very simple. It's not just an American military intervention. That is not what we're talking about. But let the people of Iran actually rise, and bring down the regime, and then all these organizations, like in a you know dramatic Hollywood movie, if the mothership goes down, and all these little ships are going to follow. So what can make this happen is the Iranian people. And I am absolutely shocked how, under eight years of the Obama administration, since June of 2009, right, every time Iranians would rise, the administration will say, "I have nothing to do. I don't want to meddle." But at the same time, they send letters to the Grand Ayatollah Khamenei of Iran and committing to work together. So again, we had the chance. Uh, unfortunately, those chances are happening when Obama or Biden are in charge, not neither uh, Bush or uh, or Trump. So the question is, do we hope? Is it possible? Is it possible that at one point the Iranian people, youth women, minorities, etc., are successful? I am not gonna answer it now, but I would like our guest, special guests, uh, Giselle, to start you know, intervening and giving us her wisdom. But let's start, of course, by asking her uh, to tell us more about the case of her father. And let me just say one word, because I've been working with her on these matters for months and months now. She's an admirable, courageous woman you know, by herself from her house in in in, in California, uh, raising raising campaigns to free her 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 father. Her father is the equivalent, if you remember the story of Vaclav Havel in Czechoslovakia, how he was put in jail because of his writings. So her father, Jimmy, the American name is Jimmy, was put in jail, was actually kidnapped. I'll leave the story to her because of his writings. They are afraid of ideas. So Giselle. Welcome. Can you can you unmute yourself?
3: Yes, yes. I just uh, thank you so much, uh, Dan, for having us here. Thank you for uh, Valid for inviting. And um, it's it's a big big honor to be over here talking about my dad, but not just my dad. I'm talking about the hostages, talking about the political prisoners in Iran, and talking about the overall picture of what we think is the problem and the solution to the Middle East and everywhere. And um, I want to start off just with a story of my father, because I think when you hear his story and what he was doing and what happened to him, it explains 90% of the overall issue. So my dad, um, Jamsheet Sharma, but we always called him Jimmy, it's not the American name, it's just his nickname since <laughs> we were kids. Uh, that's what we call him. Um, He was born in Iran during uh, the Shah's time and um, his parents divorced and his mother went to the US. His father went to Germany. My dad went with his dad to Germany as, as a little boy. So he did not grow up in Iran. He grew up in Germany and he spent his adult years here in the US. So he had all the freedom. That we have you know freedom of expression freedom to live freedom to have any political view anything that we have he had that too but looking back at the people that he left behind and what happened after the time that he left after what they call the islamic revolution but we call it a coup because that's what it was absolute oppression and tyranny on the people that were there and these people have in the second this happened has been rising up coming to the streets risking their lives and giving their lives to get freedom and they have not been supported internationally at all to the contrary they have been suppressed and their oppressors which is the islamic regime of iran has been supported for 44 years right now Mm
0: -hmm.
3: so people like my father Um, He's a software engineer, actually, (laughs) he was not in a political field. He developed a website about 16, 17 years ago, um, before we had social media, and gave the people of Iran an outlet, an internet outlet, where they could anonymously come and talk about what is really going on inside of Iran, because the Islamic regime, as bad as we see it is, it is trying to save face by not showing the atrocities and the human rights violations inside of Iran. They're trying to say they're a normal country, which they're not. They're a terrorist organization. They're trying to say they have no harm on the Western world. Everything that they're doing is only against maybe their own people over there, which is not true. They're expanding their terror, as we see in in Israel and worldwide. And Giving the people of Iran an outlet where you can show what is really going on was a huge thorn in the eyes of the regime. How important are people like my father who show these things? You will find out because the first thing that they do is they commit um, uh, what we call uh, character assassination. That means they portray you and with their huge social networks and their huge campaigns as a bad person as a CIA agent, as a Mossad agent, as a a terrorist, as a criminal to discredit you. If that doesn't work, and that happened in 2009, they sent their real assassins to America. So they sent their assassins to our door to murder my father. That is how important roles like this are for the regime. They need to take them out. And when that didn't work, when the assassination plot failed, and he was on a business trip in 2020 um he had a flight overlay it was during the pandemic he had a flight overlay in dubai and he was kidnapped by agents of the islamic regime from dubai taken to oman and then taken to iran this happened in front of the eyes of the world but nobody talks about it not our german government because we're germans not our us governments because we're americans they are completely silent about what happened to an american patriot that was fighting for freedom our freedoms the freedom in the middle east that's how we treat our patriots um, he's not the first one that's been treated like that we all remember the case of robert levinson who was also um held hostage in iran he didn't make it out of there so this is just this is the horrific how our governments are treating people like my dad but what happened to him over there in iran is um he's right now three and a half years in their custody somewhere at an unknown location as a hostage they're holding him in solitary confinement and torturing him right now for 1230 days He has no access to a lawyer, to anybody, not a single human being has seen him in all of this time. They pull him out of his cell, they take him through sham trials to make him look like a bad criminal, and they gave him the death sentence this this year in February. So now they want to execute him. Looking at this story of my dad, it sounds out of like a horror movie, but this reality, is actually the reality of thousands like my father. Not just inside of Iran, we had the Islamic regime come out to Europe, to America, assassinating, kidnapping people throughout these 44 years. And the same thing is what they're doing to the people of Iran, because the people, as you have seen last year, they are so fed up with this regime that they're risking their lives. They stand with their bodies in front of bullets and guns and saying stop to the terrorists. So these people are the actual allies of our government. These people are the ones that will do anything to bring this regime down. That's why, but it was saying it is so important to support the diaspora, to support the people and to stop supporting the Islamic regime of Iran.
1: Well, Well, I know the history and i understand a bunch of the history and um so i i fully understand how we have taken a back seat since uh really since 1979 and allowed all this nonsense to continue on but it really took a, a turn for the worse uh during the the obama administration and i would like to i don't know uh Waleed, are you uh, are you would you be willing to talk about how uh the blind eye started to become not only a blind eye but completely turned off uh, of anything that was uh, radical Islam during the old Ob- Obama administration sorry I'll be I'll be happy to answer that I wrote actually a couple of
2: books on the matter mm-hmm. books that have been attacked. By the Islamic lobby, the Islamist lobby. Uh, imagine, have you heard of CARE? C A I. Oh yeah. No, oh, who yeah. has not heard of CARE and NIAC, the the uh, the Iranian uh, counterpart? Imagine they ca- they arrived to a point where they sued my book. <laughs> that only happens in America. Uh, they wanted to ban my book from getting into universities. So that's a different story. So I've covered that. I was among the very early wave. There was Stephen Emerson, who was also in the 90s, very focusing on this, Daniel Pipes and, and others. So the issue is that that lobby basically was successful in doing two things. Linking up, linking up the political group, which will become the Biden the Obama administration. They were they were still after 9-11, if you recall, we had the Iraq war, all the disasters. But that convention, Democratic Party convention, that saw the rise of then-Senator Obama, so from that moment till the elections of 2006, there was a formation of a group of influence inside Congress because Congress has shifted. In 2017, 2018, it became, you know, supporter of the Obama view that we need to get closer to the Iranian regime. This is where it all started, even before administration. It's in my book, by the way. Now, the question is, who came Who came to whom first? I am arguing in my book that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Iranian intelligentsia, the Iranian regime intelligentsia, understood that the only way to defeat the United States, after their crisis with our embassy, remember the hostages and etc., they realized, especially when the Soviet Union collapsed, because before that, I remember how many I was living in Beirut till 1990, so I remember vividly those events. The Iranian Islamic Republic leadership, they said both are devils. You have the big devil that is America, the small devil that is Israel, and the red devil that is the Soviet Union. And they counted on the balance of power and then they will be in the middle. Then the Soviet Union collapsed. Oops. If the Soviet Union collapsed, they feared that the United States is gonna come and remove that regime. That's your reaction, normal reaction of Americans. When we won the Cold War and the Soviets collapsed, then we have to go after those who actually are the second radicals, which is the Islamic Republic of Iran. They immediately went into action. They connected with the international left-wing organization which was under the Soviet Union known as the Intercom, International Communists. Now, those international communists who were prevalent in Europe and here and on campuses and etc. they really didn't like Iran and the theological elites. They were against them. But then when the Soviet Union collapsed, guess what was missing? Dineros, the money. Mm-hmm. Because those international networks, radical networks, Trotskyist and oh, Stalinist, they lived off what the Soviet Union would offer them. And they were behind the rise of the so-called movements, anti-war movement, we knew that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, these were all trained networks by the Soviet Union. Actually, Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. Eastern Europe gave us so many stories from Chikia to Poland to Hungary about all those who paused in the West as being anti-war. They were actually funded and trained by the KGB. So now that international network, and by the time I had emigrated to the United States, so I was asking questions. question, What's gonna to happen to them? Who's gonna feed them, right? And the answer was the most organized regime in the region who was able to feed them, connect with them, and control them What the Islamic Republic of Iran. Remember that they have, they have controlled large segment of the money of oil production. Iran was one of the largest oil and gas production. Uh, we froze a lot of money, but not all of the money. See, that's the difference. The United States immediately froze a lot of Iranian money, but not all of it. So the international left wing, which is very odd. Let me add one more thing. It's very rich, The situation. The left wing in the region, they were, they were massacred by the Iranian regime. The Communist Party, the Socialists of Iran were actually massacred by the Iran regime. But the Iran regime didn't care about that. They cared about being friendly with the Western international left-wing organizations, from Berkeley in California, all the way to NYU. So they wanted to appropriate, and they did. And who comes out of this left-wing movement? The young Senator Obama, mm-hmm. and the young Senator Kerry, right? He was not in the peace movement of Vietnam. and Now everything comes together. So the Iranian regime understood that after the Cold War is over, All they have to do is to connect with them and promise them that there will be a partnership between the Islamic Republic of Iran and the international left in America. That's the genesis of it. So when that left-wing group in America, politicians, came to power through the White House through this election in in 2008, this was the moment for the Islamic Republic to do a rapprochement with the administration of Obama, with that team inside the administration. Mm -hmm. Let me just say In past decades, differences in foreign policy between the Democrats and Republicans were not that big. There were differences, but not of the size that we see right now and the depth that we see right now, because now we have a foreign hostile power exerting influence inside our institutions. That's a very big uh, difference. And this this explains how the Obama administration on day one said, we are going to be partnering with the ayatollah they sent him a letter on june of 2009 remember that they sent obama sent a letter to grand ayatollah khamenei and I said at the time why is this happening that was the beginning of the iran deal and there was at that time and Giselle could remind us of this a huge demonstration in iran the green revolution the, the iranian people were so close from bringing down the regime who saved the regime president obama unfortunately mm-hmm by saying, I'm not going to be meddling. That's the beginning. That's the genesis that eventually ended into.
1: The system is, because there's no question that uh, the American people are not in support of these insane ideas that are coming out of the Washington swamp right now. And, uh, you know, the, we, we I refer to, uh, the uh, Biden administration is the old Biden administration. Because <laughs> wow. I think we all know who's running yeah. that show. And it isn't the brain dead uh, Joe Biden who is uh, suffering from advanced senility. It happens to be the gentleman and uh, uh, family living down the street about a mile from the White House. Are you talking about a basement by any chance? <laughs>
2: And how our foreign <laughs> policy is led from a basement. Well, I agree with you, at least what I see away from domestic politics, is that the foreign policy and national security policies of the Biden administration are handled and organized by the same teams of the Obama administration. There is no question about it. I know there are some scandals now relating to the uh, the team that is dealing with the Iran with uh, the Iran matter, right? Uh, Giselle, could you just give us one minute about because you met the, uh, the Iran uh, coordinator. Could you just enlighten us about what has been going on and what are these investigations about?
3: Say that one more time because it was breaking up. Um, who am I talking about?
2: Oh, uh, 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 Miley, Miley, Robert Miley. Oh,
3: Robert Miley, yeah. Just yeah, give us a
2: couple of minutes of what's the story about because this is something our audience needs to hear.
3: Yeah, sure, um, I mean, from the side of the Iranian diaspora, as uh, Dr. Ferris already said, we know that our government, our schools, our media, our NGOs, our think tanks have been infiltrated for decades by the Islamic regime of Iran, because we know their people and we know the connections and we've been screaming about that and we've been called paranoid and warmongers and this and that until this year, um, about, I, I wanna say, Two, three weeks before the Hamas attack on Israel, Mm -hmm. um, Semaphore and Iran International brought out a huge piece in which they are exposing what they're calling the Iran Expert Initiative. Mm -hmm. The Iran Expert Initiative was an initiative created by the Islamic regime, where they're taking scholars, uh, politicians, and so on, sending them into the world, and they have high, high positions in our governments. One of them, Adriana Tabatabai, is right now still working in the Pentagon, even after this explosion.
2: You, you mean one of them is working in the Pentagon, in our Pentagon, Pentagon. as we speak right now? And as she has right she now. has security clearances the highest possible? Yes.
3: So, yes. Yeah. so this is just one person out of... Thousands and the network and everything that Semaphore exposed is not just in the US, it is also in Europe. We know which people they are. We have to do investigations. But what happened? What happened when this major um, network was exposed, showing us why we are doing these deals with the devils? The Islamic regime unleashed their proxy, the terrorists, on Israel, and the uh-huh. whole story was forgotten. Two days before, they were like in Congress asking for investigations. Everybody was outraged. Now everybody forgot that this even happened. So Giselle,
2: sorry for interrupting you. Are you telling Mm -hmm. me, and I agree with you already, that one of the dividends of this war waged by the Iran regime on Israel, out of nowhere, right, one is to bring down relations between Saudi and Israel, two is to attack our troops in Syria and Iraq. 3 is to crush the uh, Iranian revolution the popular revolution and 4 yeah. to drive attention away from their lobby which was about to be exposed in America yes that's that that's, is- that's a big <laughs> that real.
3: is the bottom line and i love how we have a lot of reporters that are going after care right now exposing how they're connected to uh, qatar and like uh, hamas and all of those things They're missing the big picture because the biggest one has infiltrated us and their people are still working in our State Department. And we forgot, it's just Mm -hmm. done, we're not talking about it.
2: Didn't we see, now back to the discussion in general, didn't we see a couple of days ago that staffers, staffers at the White House, right Dan? Staffers at the White House have been asking their president, their boss to impose a ceasefire on Israel, impose a ceasefire on Israel. But that's from, it has never been seen that bureaucrats will be going outside. Mm -hmm. So I looked at the picture and told my own followers, this is the Iran lobby. This is the Hamas lobby. They are at the point where they don't care. They just go up in the open and then demand that their boss, the president of the United States, condemn Israel. And by condemning Israel, he's actually condemning all the forces that are anti-Iran regime. So I have never seen in 33 years, I've been teaching and doing public policy here, a level of influence that foreign uh, hostile regimes, including the Iran regime, have had in the United States. We used to think, well, the Chinese and the Russians, yes, of course they have influence. But now we're talking about a regime with billions of dollars. The Russians don't spend billions of dollars. you know. They were accused in 2020 about meddling and they discovered 12 Facebook accounts. Goodness, that's not real. But here we're talking about billions of dollars. So it it is stunning. This conversation is stunning to me.
3: If I can just add the story of, um, because once you hear that, you can really see the big picture then if that's okay. Um, This summer, summer, um, I was in DC several times. And the reason is um, our administration was after years, all of a sudden, interested in hostages, interested in human lives. They were all of a sudden very humanitarian. It was all over the news that American citizens, American nationals are held hostage in Iran, and they, even though they've been held there for seven years, eight years or so, need to be released right now. And in order to release them, we, the U.S., have to give the Islamic regime, the terrorists, $6 billion. Uh, I think FDD said it's not even six billion dollars; it was sixteen billion dollars or more. But everybody 16, in the press was talking, one, six, yes, 16, one okay. six, uh, was talking about the six billion. So let's go with a smaller number. Six billion has never been paid in ransom to get people out. What happened? People like me, whose dad is an actual hostage that was kidnapped and taken to Iran, were completely blocked. We could not talk to the State Department. I had to camp in dc in the heat of the summer in front of the state department with other hostage families until they agreed to see us the press that was there and i'm talking about all the major channels would not talk to me while having other hostage families on the show, and these other hostage families would promote the narrative that, well, it is for the hostages, we have to pay this money, and it has been used for humanitarian reasons, while me, little Giselle, screaming outside, don't pay the kidnappers of my dad, there are other ways to get the hostages out. I'm completely blocked, I'm completely ignored, so I'm about one week before we gave the kidnappers of my dad six billion dollars, I'm in the State Department talking to the Iran envoy. And I'm telling him, if you do this right now and give the regime six billions and get just a bunch of Americans back, but leaving the rest behind for a later deal, you are signing the death sentence of my dad. They will murder him over there. Because what mm. else what are you gonna pay for him then afterwards? You know, this is this is crazy. And when you're giving this money to the terrorists that are terrorizing the people of Iran, Europeans, Americans, what are you gonna do about the future hostages and the future victims of this regime? And he looked me in the eye and he said, What future hostages? Fast <laughs> uh-huh. forward two weeks later, <laughs> we have Hamas <laughs> taking two hundred and fifty the- hostages and you know, I don't have to explain the rest of it. This is what we're doing. But what happened is nobody's talking about that deal anymore. Nobody is talking that our administration gave the 6000 that then empowered the Islamic regime to unleash uh, the, the devil on, on the Israelis. And right now, they're giving the regime another $10,000 as we speak. And over billion. in the press, mm. $10 billion, sorry, $10 billion mm-hmm. as we speak. And there's nobody talking about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to add something Else that uh, ought to be thought about. That you, you know, you talked about the four, the four things that were actually uh, 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 created by this whole scenario. I, mm-hmm. I'm going to add a fifth one. Uh, Walid. I'm going to add that uh, this energizes the the uh, uh, international immigration. Oh, yeah. movement that is coming across borders, not only our southern border, our northern border, and virtually every European border uh, with uh, people that are going to commit jihad. Yeah. yeah you, you know,
2: can I can I comment on this, Dan? Mm, please. So, the same year I published a book to, in 2005, Future Jihad, uh, which I recommend even as is- Published since 2005, has been read by many campuses, our military, our intel. Though there was a campaign against it, it remained top on foreign policy lists. So I'm proud of that little achievement. In that book, I projected, based on my analysis of statements made by the, the chief ideologue of the Muslim Brotherhood, his name is Sheikh Yusuf al qaradawi he had mentioned many times on Al Jazeera, and I used to go on Al Jazeera uh, before they really uh, attacked me personally. After the, you know, the Trump campaign and the Trump victory, then then I stopped going on that uh, network, which is pro Qatar or funded by Qatar, pro Muslim Brotherhood. At the end of the day, he said multiple times during a show, Al Sharia al Hayat, Sharia and Life, uh, every Sunday at 1 p.m. Just to give the details, multiple, multiple times he encouraged the jihadists all the jihadists of the world, of any background, to engage in demographic jihad, in Arabic, al-jihad al al which means, he said, the best and most important mission that you have is to cross all barriers, all borders, and get inside Europe, get inside the United States. Because if you are in the belly of these countries who give all the rights, you, you become equal. Even if you have a green card, you become practically and technically equal, then you could paralyze their actions against us. He said, if you are on the inside of these democracies, you could easily paralyze or try to paralyze any action, even a defensive action. So look at France now, and I speak with many members Mm -hmm. of the French parliament, French assembly, they realize it's too late. They allowed so many, and I'm not talking about the regular people looking for jobs coming through legal means. That's history of the world. I'm talking about this quasi-demographic invasion organized by the jihadists and aided by the far left who are not like without any brain here, not knowing by the way, the far left doesn't understand those woke and those, uh, you know, the, their allies, that at the end of the day, if the jihadists are in control, they are going to be the first victimized. In Iran, the first victims after the coup of 1979, were the progressives who were the allies of the Islamists? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Gazelle's G- father wrote about this matter. So you had the Communist Party, the two day party, and then the other progressives and the Islamists and Khomeini and all that stuff coming together. They brought down the regime, right? And the, the Qajar administration was at fault for not knowing what to do. And once the Islamist regime was established, they destroyed all their allies. 50,000 people from the 2D the Communist Party were killed, massacred, and then the other organizations. Hit. And even they came to the liberal, then they came to everybody else. Same thing here. Those wokest who are allies now with the jihadists will be the first one to be eliminated. The women mm-hmm. lib who should be standing with Iranian women will be the first one to go to jail if they don't put the, 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 the niqab or the uh, hijab the way they want it. And we see it in, in Iran. So we are against work by these radicals for the last three decades, as far as you can remember, and then after you, as far as I can remember, they were those uh, works, uh, inner works in America and in the West to sink uh, our population, to sink our democracy within these attempts by forced, organized, radical migrations controlled by the jihadists.
1: Mm-hmm. That's. Very well said. Um, incidentally, I want to uh, mention that uh, Al Gore and John Kerry are both uh, uh, big financiers of Al Jazeera. I don't Indeed. know if a lot of Especially people know that.
2: Especially mm-hmm. Al Gore. Al Gore actually wanted to you know, buy the whole network and then activate it here. It didn't work for business reasons, but that's the alliance that really is our problem. It's a piece of the West which is liberal, uh far left thinking they think they just created an interpretation uh, you know in their mind that the islamists are in their view progressive so all they have to do is just to slowly bring them you know through social uh, values through uh, justice system they they really think some of them mm-hmm. that they, they are the ones influencing the islamists but the islamists are the ones calling the shots so that, that the real alliance is controlled by the islamists they are providing them money and they're providing the guidance and they are brainwashing the kids. Imagine young girls with, I don't know, orange hair or stuff like that, <laughs> defending the jihadists in Gaza. They don't understand that if they were in Gaza or in Iran or in the region or in Afghanistan, they would be completely suppressed by yeah. those they are defending here.
1: Well, and not only that, but the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, transgender movement and so many of the things that seem to want to jump on this bandwagon, they'll be the first to go Oof. when, uh, you know, radical Islam uh, takes a, a foothold in our government and has the ability to start dictating terms. And beyond that, uh, Dan,
2: the, the awkward situation is that the so called progressive left, uh, I don't even believe that they are progressive at all at this point in time, and all the so-called liberal, when they see a revolution of women, of minorities, of youth, of girls in Iran, rising against this fascistic regime, with whom do they side? That's yep. incredible. The brainwashing of our classrooms have gone so far that they think that the Islamic regime is the progressive and the progressive liberal women of Iran are the fascists or are the ones promoting values against it. And even their view of Islam Uh, or of the Islamic uh, Caliphate has changed. I saw a a poster, a picture by a girl who, if she shows herself like this in Afghanistan, she goes to prison or beyond with a big sign saying, I can't wait for the Caliphate. It's like a song. I can't wait for the Caliphate. They are completely, they have completely lost their brains, unfortunately.
1: Oh, absolutely. And uh, the the uh, I, I'm going to mention the establishment Republican Party because we've got uh, people, and, and I call them neocons in the Republican Party, who are uh, neo-fascists as well. And I go back to looking at some of the people who attacked Trump mm. uh, within the party. The Republican Party has... I'm I'm going to say roughly half of the Republican party has got people in it uh and I use this analogy it's like the democrats are speeding into socialism like they've got their uh they're in a car and they've got their foot to the floor and they're going as fast as they can and the, the establishment Republicans are in a car behind them trying to drive the speed limit. Mm-hmm. This is exactly the kind of stuff you're talking about because the, 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 these people actually think that there is a soft landing, there's a nice way to accomplish this progressive agenda, and there isn't. Ultimately, uh, socialism turns to communism, Terms yeah. to totalitarianism turns to despotism. It's all part of the the same plan. It's only a matter of time.
2: I, I have I have personally experienced this when I was a professor at Florida Atlantic University in uh, in Florida and at other colleges later over the, the decades. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have in my classroom students. Well, it doesn't happen in my classroom because I teach history in a different manner in different ways. So they open their eyes and ears and their papers as a result of their own free research will come in the right direction. And by the way, many of my students ended up in many good positions in Washington over the years, but it's one classroom with one professor. Maybe there are a few like me in multiple places, but the overwhelming majority was brainwashed by the system. I remember vividly that was in the late nineties, having a student, the first time student in my classroom. And then I asked the question, give me an example of the a democratic regime in the middle east and that guy said iran i said what where did you hear that he said well my professor is telling you that iran is a democratic system and how he said because they have a parliament therefore they are elected and therefore you know they have a president i said have you not studied the soviet union they had a president of the soviet union and their members uh, you know the ruling uh, establishment was elected but was elected by the communists this was an internal system of elections by the comrades. So that's not a democracy. Is there any opposition movement in Iran allowed by the government? They didn't know, of course, but of course there isn't. So acting and brainwashing in the classroom will get you, as I said earlier in the show, will get you a problem in your newsroom. Why our media is not get it? It's not just that they are being influenced by money at the higher level, maybe corporate level. But at the lower level, these people are there at those desks in the New York Times, Washington Post, you know, uh, you know, know, CNN, LA Times, these people were in classrooms. And there was a defect in the education. So they are now writing, and students are quoting them. See, it's like a machine that is a circle. Uh, you have students say, okay, let me get a couple of sources from the New York Times. But it's already corrupt at the New York Times because those who took the sources before have been also miseducated, diseducated and disinform.
1: Absolutely. Our uh, journalism students are almost to a person part of this mill that is uh, teaching progressive socialism, teaching Frankfurt School mm-hmm. education. And, and that's where we're at right now. Uh, does you, Giselle, I, I want to uh, give you uh, an opportunity to address what the, uh, the ladies' movement, what is happening in Iran right now, and how can, uh, how can our viewers and our listeners help to change what's happening and support uh, what you're trying to get across?
3: Thank you, Dan. (laughs) For the ladies' movement, I'm sure you mean the women's life freedom movement. It is termed, like people say, it is a feminist movement. And um, we have women on the forefront, which is correct. And there are no women rights in Iran. But it is actually a movement of um, human rights, because even like we see it in the news, they like to take off the hijab and make it all about the hijab. It's not about taking off the hijab. It's not about getting equal rights as men, because even if all of the women in Iran get the same rights as men, they have no rights. (laughs) They still cannot speak. Mm -hmm. They still cannot do what they want. They're still oppressed under terrorists. So it is a humanitarian movement to get, um, tyrants out of this world, and get more freedom and peace for everybody. Um, This movement started, as I said, in 79, 44 years ago. Mm -hmm. It goes in waves. And the last time we were very, very high was in 2019, when everybody came out, and it was crushed. Um, People are shot in the streets, mass executions happen, and the pandemic happened, and they were just waiting during those years for the pandemic to be over and have another spark to come out that happened last year in september when Amini was beaten to death by the morality police and another wave came around what happened this time when this wave came is that Throughout the whole world, people were interested. People could sympathize with them. They could see the pictures from all of these citizen journalists and see what is going on. Little girls in 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 the school were poisoned with poisonous gas. People were shot in the in the eyes and women in the breast and genitalia. People were put to jail and executed without a trial, without anything. It is just like when we're talking about genocide. This is a genocide going on over there that nobody wants to talk about. Why did it quiet down is because all of the reasons that Balit just said, our um, infiltrated governments decided to to side with the oppressors once again. And if I may add, because we see it a lot, we see the infiltration on, on the left, we see it in our Democrats, this infiltration has been going on for 44 years. So it is not just the left side, even the right side, even the people who get it have failed on one point. They didn't talk to the Iranians. They didn't talk to the diaspora if you're from i don't know great britain and you move to the us and great britain takes is taken over by the jihadists you will talk to the diaspora the british people and you will talk to the people of great britain to know how to take them out so this strategy of talking to the diaspora and we are huge over here this has been missing and we need to introduce that what we're doing is either we're on the side of the regime, or we're thinking we know what to do. We don't know what to do. We have to start this dialogue and um, we have to give the people of Iran a voice and support them. Every single activist like me who is coming out is attacked by the regime not just on social media, it's not just when I make a post and expose what Hamas is doing, what the Islamic regime is doing, that I get all of these regime bots and people posting stuff uh, underneath it to discredit me. I cannot even move physically. Like when I'm going to Europe to advocate over there for my dad, I have to have a security team of six people around me 24 seven because of the risk of being kidnapped executed taken out or something like that this is how risky it is for us to speak to be on your show (laughs) what am i saying you know so helping us get a voice helping us to be on on stages helping us to spread the truth that is going on in iran is a major step forward this is exactly the reason why the regime turns down the internet, why the regime is hunting down people like my dad, this is what will destroy them. When we bring out the truth and everybody can see the truth, they will join us because, and that's that's my last part that I wanna add, there are people who don't get it, who don't, who don't see the picture as, as Wali just explained, but they care. They think they care mm-hmm. about genocide. They care about hostages. They care about that. But if they would really care and we would give these the right people a stage, they would be speaking about the genocide that is going on in Sudan. They would yeah. be speaking about the genocide in Armenia. They would be speaking about uh, what the Taliban is doing to the women in, in, in Afghanistan. They would be speaking about the hundreds and thousands killed by these jihadists in Syria in Iraq mm-hmm. in Iran. They don't get these news because people like me and people like activists from these countries are not on the news telling right. them about it. So we can... Get those people who care about that on our side to fight the right fight.
1: And and how exactly, um, um, Giselle, how exactly can uh, people do something that's uh, supportive and do it in a way that makes sense? Is it a matter of going to Congress? Is it a matter of talking to individual groups or people? Uh, Maybe enlighten the listeners on how they can actually help support uh, the movement that's going on now in Iran.
3: Multiple different steps. And of course, the best thing would be for all of our administrations, for all of our people in Congress, to talk to the opposition. Like we have um, here in America, we have the Uh, Crown Prince who is here and available and would like to talk. And we have all over the world, these activists, they are lawyers, they are uh, political experts, they write briefings, they have policies, we have policies that we bring to Congress and want to explain it. So definitely talking to the diaspora is the very, very, very first step. But you can even go further back and um, bring these issues into media, into mainstream media and that would give us a big outlet. Even if if you don't have connections to the media, social media is huge. As I said, I didn't start off talking to somebody like you on a podcast. I started off with zero followers three and a half years ago when my dad was kidnapped. On the same day, I opened my Twitter account with no followers and was just screaming on there. So these um, following people, following activists that are speaking the truth, that can educate you and that are under attack, believe me, liking their stuff, sharing their stuff is a bigger thorn in the eyes of the regime than any other thing that you can do because people like us get tired We can't do this fight alone anymore. So when you amplify our voices, when you are on our side, we know, okay, it's worth it. We we see the light at the end of the tunnel. People who are coming right now from inside of Iran, we have so many who were able to flee. They have like one eye shot out or metal shrabble in their arms. They should be celebrities. They should be touring around America and Europe right now and hear their stories. We barely can get them on a stretch in a rally where where people care. This is outrageous. These are the real real heroes. I don't know if I would face guns and bullets for anybody's rights, but these people do it over there. So that's, that's the most important things that we can do.
1: Well, and you're right about that. The real heroes are the ones that are doing what they are risking their lives to do. And the fact that you can't travel around without having some kind of, of uh, armed guards or people with you to to uh, make sure you don't get kidnapped, uh, Doctor Ferris. That's uh, I have got a feeling you probably have a very similar problem.
2: Yeah. Oh, I have had it for a long, long time. Now a second and third generation is following. We had these conversations with Giselle and others. Uh, many, many times. Let me back up a little bit and then I'll address what my own experience has been. Uh, During World War II, the British and the allies in Great Britain, when France was occupied, who did they speak with? General de Gaulle, right? Mm -hmm. They spoke to the free French people who were in Britain, who were in North Africa, who were everywhere. So the diaspora is crucial. The Iranian diaspora in this case, but the Lebanese and the Syrian and the Egyptians and all these diasporas that have been integrated. We're not talking about the jihadists, the anti-Jihadist diaspora. It's a crucial element, a crucial tool, uh to 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 you know forward the ideas into Iran. Second, during the Cold War, who actually started the movement to crumble the uh the, the basis of, of the Soviet Union? People like Vaclav Havel mm-hmm. in the in Czechoslovakia, or Lech Valesa, the Solidarity movement. You recall that. I mean, you and I can can remember this. So those those movements inside the uh, the Soviet bloc were the ones that started what led to Perestroika by Gorbachev and the collapse of everything else. So let's not let's not forget that inside the Middle East, if I look at Iran, millions of young Iranians and women, courageous women, are the ones we need to talk to. But also in Lebanon, the Cedars revolution, the youth who kicked the Assad forces out and are facing now Hezbollah, and same thing. The Kurds, the Kurds are completely isolated by the Iranian militia. So we have a lot of allies. Israel has a luck, it's an independent state. It came from the Holocaust and was able to establish an independent state. But there are a lot of other nations in the Middle East who would be our, our allies. Now, coming to the security, First of all, I lived the entire war of Lebanon, 15 years. Mm -hmm. I don't know why am I still alive, because I have been targeted, not just going through the bombs and the car bombs, but I was targeted on short lists. I was like her father, you know, I had a publication and I wrote articles, and that's why those who were on the other side did not like me. I was not a fighter, but I was a fighter in the war of ideas. So I had to leave the country. I had to leave everything. I was a successful lawyer. I had, you know, everything. I didn't come here as an economic uh, migrant. I came here for freedom in America 3 decades ago. And behind me, more and more people like her father and others, you know, migrated to the west. These are the people we need to value. But even in the west, even in the west I am saying including the United States, the danger is going after us right now. They mm-hmm. have been so encouraged by the Iran deal, they have been so encouraged by the way our elite has been working with the Muslim Brotherhood that many times over the past 15 years I have been severely smeared. And you know, smear is the beginning of a movement that would lead to violence at the end of the day. I have been smeared by publications like Mother Jones, even the New York Times, they lie, they publish uh, all these hit pieces. I know my my skin is thick at this point in time, but uh, we are also risking a lot. And I'm a public figure, unlike her, I don't have uh, full security, I have partial security, but it's, it's really a problem. So when we engage in opening the eyes of Americans is the worst to the enemy. Why do they dislike us? Because we speak, if we don't speak, nobody comes towards us, but because we speak up and the battle is over the brain, the mind, opinion of the American public. We can influence the American public, and that's what is very dangerous for them.
1: Well, I can certainly understand that. Um, Dr. Ferris, I I want to address something that's really, to me, quite important. And incidentally, uh, Thumper, uh, would you please uh, put up uh, photos of uh, Dr. Ferris's books? because. I'm telling you, I, I'm going to uh, write you a very big check, check, and uh, ask you to uh, send me a number of your uh, books. Uh, and uh, I'm, I would like to have a personalization. And I'd,
0: I'd love, to, I'd love to put those photos up, but I was not able to open any images of books. Uh, oh, you weren't. Put in the chat there <laughs> if there is a link to where the books can be purchased. Uh, if somebody has a link to that. Well, okay, I'll, I'll get that. Go to screen, go to uh, but, uh,
1: Amazon. Uh, Amazon has done, yeah, yeah. In and, fact, and, that's where I got and the and picture. You get all the books.
0: Okay, uh, uh, Doctor, do you have a link to the, uh, the Amazon where your books are listed there? Uh, I don't know. If, if you I can, you room. can uh, just post it in the in the uh, chat room in the Zoom. Oh, the chat room. Okay. Yeah. Put it, yeah. post it in the we, chat room there in the Zoom, and I'll grab it from there.
1: Okay, and uh, Thumper actually. Uh, if you look at my announcement that I sent out, three of the books are on there. Yes. All you have to do is click on them and I
0: I tried down. They are not they're not opening up for me. Oh
1: really? Oh. oh. No. Well, oh, we I must got some have... of them to open up but others wouldn't, but there weren't any books ones that we, opened we up. We must them. have friends uh even uh even monitoring this uh this podcast. It's very possible
2: <laughs> <laughs> i
1: I, just, I tried
0: like three different ways it. to get this those files to open up they wouldn't open up and then a couple of them came through black can, so, can
2: you see now uh, the book the yes. first book now yes, you can, can see it, see it. okay yeah. so all i'm Thank doing you. is to uh, yeah to, to get it from the actual email and put it here. this is future jihad this is basically the most important book even more than the one i have recently published the one i recently published about iran i'll put the Cover now. But that book really is the foundation to understand the jihadi threat, both Iranian humanists and Al Qaeda and Muslim Brotherhood. It explains their strategy. So that's why I would strongly recommend that you will get this book, and I'll be more than happy to sign it. There are two versions soft cover and uh, and hard cover as well. So that would be uh, one. The other one is Iran, an Imperialist Republic. And uh, that one. Here we go. I'm going to just, oops, I don't know what happened here. I'm going to just copy it and put it in the box. Here we go. That one explains the strategy of the regime strategy of the, can you see it now?
0: Yes. Well, it's, it's showing up here. So
2: it's showing up. So that, that one is the most updated. It covers, uh, two things. It covers the history. Of the Iran regime strategies, everything I've covered and Giselle's has covered, but it also talks about the influence of the Iran regime within our own country, within our own institutions. There is a section on every part of that influence, should it be in academia, or it could be in media, or it could be even in the bureaucracy and the administrations. So I would recommend those three books, the, one, the first one, The Foundation is Future Jihad. The second one is Iran, a uh, imperialist republic. The third one, for those who are interested in domestic politics, which I published in 2020, uh, it's more so for the American public, the choice. And the choice is that in elections in general, uh, we need to have citizens understanding the difference in foreign policies and in national security and vote accordingly. So I don't deal with the vote, but I urge citizens, if they are interested, let's say, in fighting terrorism, they cannot vote for uh, politicians or for parties that are interested in partnering with, the, with, the, uh, with these mm-hmm. journalists. That's very simple. So that's a guide as to how to understand uh, foreign policy. And sometimes it goes, again, you know, within the two parties. It's not like only one party makes mistakes and the other doesn't. I think as, uh, as Dan has said, the influence of the radicals has been on both sides of the island, fortunately. Mm-hmm. I, my recommendations would be those three books at this point in time. Uh, sure. And I am omnipresent on social media. Uh, just if you know how to spell my name, Walid Ferris, here, here on are. the screen. At Walid Ferris on, fa- uh, on Facebook, the old Facebook, on, uh, on, on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, readers and viewers can see me.
1: Well, uh Waleed, that's interesting because those are the three books that I put in the announcement that I sent out uh, and and they look to me like to, the, to be the uh, the titles that were the most uh, probably the most germane to the discussion right now. they're they're subjects, they're ideas that need to be explored. And um, I want you to please explain to our viewers and our listeners the uh what the Trump administration was trying to do with intelligent statesmanship and uh not succumbing to these radical movements and how really his administration was uh and I'm sorry to say this, but was defeated by all the holdovers from the Obama administration that influenced and checked any of his positive policies by uh, their influence on members of Congress and also by outright sabotage in his administration.
2: Man, that needs a two hours by itself, but let me summarize. I know. The best. This is a fascinating, a fascinating topic that most Americans today are interested in to actually think about the future. Uh, I know. I say I don't do domestic politics, but I do national safety and national security. Domestic politics, obviously. I was involved in uh, advising Department of Homeland Security for many years. I have, let me say it clearly, uh, conducted seminars for most national security agencies and intelligence for about a decade since the Bush administration till the mid uh, Trump administration. So I know what it means when foreign influence comes in and actually use the government. You have been talking about it in terms of elections, talking about it in terms of, or, excuse me, other influences, but this is real, it happened by hiring, for example, advisors, They're not just the ones mentioned by Giselle, the high profile, Iran regime uh, sympathetic advisors, but translators. I used to be, you know, attending big conferences at large, important gatherings at CENTCOM, that's the command for the Middle East in down in Tampa, or uh, at the National Defense University, the intelligence uh, agencies. I have not written about it and published, but that's coming in my memoirs. I have very, very explosive memoirs coming in. In a, in a period of time where i saw how that infiltration occurred in within our within our defense and intelligence and national security and foreign policy by placing individuals who come under the cover of translators of regional experts and you look at the roots of where they're coming from it's academia or it's the influence of the lobby so when you play once you place them in these positions and then decision makers wants to make a decision, right? So they go to the closer. Even the the high-ranking commanders, who are dealing with conflicts abroad, they first look into the circle uh, around them about who can in, who can explain to me. And I would say, the real meaning of this position by the Islamic Republic of Iran. It's not about data. They have all the data. Let's say the Iranians have moved the. Revolutionary Guard here, they moved money here. What does that mean? You could defeat the raw intelligence collection by having an opinion saying, well, according to how I understand the brain and mind of the Islamic Republic of Iran, and there is no data for It's just whatever you are saying as an expert, you could derail a policy. You could derail an entire policy. And that's, to answer your question, we had for eight years under the Obama administration, be influenced by many, many radicals and that influence went into the bureaucracy. So, comes the Trump administration. Let's be honest, I've been part of that first campaign and I've been named as the first foreign policy advisor. You know, it's, in the, it's it, during the Washington Post uh, statement that the, Trump has done. And the problem is that within the Republican Party, and I can testify to this, there was no immediate support I mean, the bureaucracy of the the Republican Party did not immediately support the recruitment Mm -hmm. for a Trump administration. So for the first six months, the Trump administration didn't have all the resources it needs. You know what they were doing? The lobbies, they were fighting individuals who knew what's going on in foreign policy and blocking them from from accessing to the the administration. I, I am an example, a living example. I could have been and should have been, at least a, uh, a high-ranking official in the National Security Council. I mean, I was the first foreign policy advisor. How come How come I was not actually brought in? It's because of the pressure. And I'm not the only one. There were many, many people who went into the same direction and uh, were blocked from helping Trump. So when when the Trump team came in, not everybody who was supposed to help him helped him or was allowed to help him. That's bottom line of what's happened. And therefore, you saw this uprising, this insurgency, the real insurgency, was a bureaucratic insurgency against him to block him. From what? From actually achieving the Arab coalition. From actually withdrawing from the Iran deal. From actually forming this amazing movement, which is the Abraham Accord. I worked on all these projects during the campaign. I saw the, the genesis of it. So I would say the next administration needs to have its own People well prepared, the teams well prepared, and not fall again into another insurgency, a bureaucratic insurgency.
1: Well, as a matter of fact, I think Trump has admitted that he made a serious mistake by retaining a lot of the uh, holdovers from the Obama administration. And in fact, I know that he recognizes the insurgents within the Republican Party, the anti-Trumpers that uh, did almost as much damage to his administration as the, uh, the liberal Democrats did. Uh, You know, I think of people like John McCain. I think of people that, uh, you know, outspoken anti-Trumpers. And uh, it it cost him a great deal, didn't it? It it did cost him a lot. I was,
2: you know, in an inner inner circle, and I, I saw this whole thing happening. From what I can say, I would say that if you compare, Trump campaign started in about, really, the you know, the fall, the end of the fall of 2015. Mm-hmm. Go back with me what happened during that fall on foreign policy grounds. Out of nowhere, we the, the Iran deal was signed in the summer of 2015.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then you have Trump and Cruz, both of them, going to the hill and then calling for a rally against the Iran deal. That was October or November. I remember vividly. I, I met him and spoke with him in December of 2015. He had made a decision that if he is elected, he is going to withdraw the United States from the Iran deal. Now, let's have a pause. What does that mean? It means that, remember all these billions going to Iran's regime and part of them is coming back. So a lot of interest in Washington and in the United States, if Trump wins, he's gonna get rid of the Iran deal and that money will stop. You said it at the beginning of the show, it is about money. It is about buying influence. So in my view, the minute Trump said, I am going to withdraw from the Iran deal, at first, if you look at the first months before he became the nominee, they were not taking him seriously, right? They were laughing at him and et cetera, but they took him seriously when his numbers were growing. And once he said, I am going to withdraw from the Iran deal, I'm going to destroy the Muslim Brotherhood, I'm going to do all of this, which meant and translated for both Within the Republican Party and within the Democratic Party, the lobbies that were profiting from the money of the Iran deal, they made a decision. This guy should not be elected, and if elected, this guy should not be managing and ruling. That's the bottom line. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's a very, very fair assumption. And incidentally, I... uh... I, I want to let you know that I was one of the uh, delegates from the state of Montana that we actually uh, nominated Trump uh, as president in Chicago in, uh, Cleveland, in Cleveland in 2016. I so yeah. um, we we I, I'm very familiar with what you're talking about. Um, let's talk about some of his really breakthrough ideas, and certainly. Um, the Abraham Accords, Yes. Uh, some of his ideas on how to deal with issues in the Middle East didn't really involve the kind of military expansionism. It it was about using statesmanship and intelligent uh, policies that took the money away from the people who were trying to do the bad things.
2: Absolutely. I'm gonna get a piece from my memoirs, which is not published, but just for you, just for us, since okay. we're in in Montana uh. <laughs> I love Montana. In fact, what has, has happened really is that and I can, you know, I can refer to a meeting I had with him in December of twenty fifteen. He called on me, he needed foreign policy advisors. Now it's part of history and he asked me to come and give him briefings. That was his first one, actually his first one. Mm-hmm. And then he asked me about, what do you think we should do in the Middle East? As simple as that. He knew the King of Jordan personally, through business and other, and he knew Mr. Netanyahu, that's what he knew. And then he asked me about the rest. He asked me about Egypt, Sisi of Egypt, and I have been involved in 2013, so three years before, in supporting an Egyptian revolution against the Muslim Brotherhood. I was all over the place in Washington trying to convince everybody, trying to convince Senator McCain. Unfortunately, he was with the Muslim Brotherhood, which is insane to me. And I said, your positions on Iran are good, but on Egypt, they're not that good. Anyway, so I explained to him my view on how we should basically partner Oh, who's that? <laughs> who the heck is that? Thumper found the right picture. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> finally showed my credentials, Montana credentials. Thank you. <laughs> There's probably another one. Um, so I, I I suggested to the president then that he should gather a number of leaders who see eye to eye like him with regard to peace. So he asked me to put principles and those principles, I am now you know, finally unveiling this, those principles became the foundations for the Abraham Accord. And the Abraham Accord is by pulling together the forces of the region. He told me those Arabs have insane amount of money, which is true. And then Israel has a military power that is well known. And then there are civil societies in the region who would want to work together. I mentioned to him, by the way, as I'm saying for the first time, and Giselle, this is for you, I mentioned to him when it came to Iran, I said, all you have to do is cancel this Iran deal and then start addressing the Iranian people. Start addressing the Iranian people instead of sending money to the regime, it's insane to send money to the regime. You send one-tenth, you send, if you send 15 or $10 billion instead of the 150 billion that you're sending to the Ayatollahs who are using it against us at the end of the day, you will get a change. You are not committing forces on the ground. You're not committing dollars because that money is the Iranian people's money, not the Iran regime money. So here you go, Giselle. I have already, in 2015, worked with uh, with with the 45th president that he should have a different policy on Iran, and he was completely convinced that this should happen. Unfortunately, the uprising against him, without going into the detail, cut short the programs he had. Uh, for the second, the second ticket, which would have actually saw, number one, Saudi and the Israelis signing, which would, have, which would have witnessed, in my view, a successful revolution by the Iranian people that would have changed everything in Iran. Evidence? During the fall of 2019. During the fall of 2019, there were large demonstrations. I mean, the Iranians were waiting and the Trump administration was busy with responding to all these charges of the Russian affair, what have you. All of this was calculated. So they rose. Unfortunately, he was under he was under siege by all these domestic forces, which in fact were working with the Iranian uh, lobby. That's
1: amazing. Giselle, you've been so good to uh, hang in there the entire program, and I see that you are standing. So uh, that that's got to be uh, uh, a two-hour program is a, is a long time to be standing. I want to give you a chance to uh, talk about how the American people and people around the world, we actually have a, uh, an interesting worldwide uh, audience that uh, does I hear from all over the world, but how they can really talk uh, to diaspora and uh, how they can actually make a difference in uh, contacting people who do make a difference.
3: Yes, uh, thank you for that. And I'm actually not standing, I'm on a bouncing ball. So
1: it's
3: <laughs> going back and
1: forth. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> it looked like you were standing, and I, uh, I thought, no. Lord, she's, she's got to be tough. I couldn't do that.
3: <laughs> thank you, though. No, um, absolutely. Um, Reaching out to the diaspora is the number one thing to get the people of Iran to do what we all want, take out the terrorists and reaching out to the entire um, uh, diaspora is very important. And there is a distinction. and <laughs> Sometimes it goes wrong because we have people who think Nayak is the diaspora, uh, is the opposition. Nayak is the direct lobby of the regime. We have people who think reformists, people um, that think the Islamic regime is a real government that can be reformed is the opposition no they are not people of iran don't want reforms they want this regime to be gone we have people that think the um, mak that has been very very strong actually in in dc there are the opposition and still the entire diaspora says they are not the opposition there if anything there are a competitor to the islamic regime but the rest of the diaspora it doesn't matter which side, who you talk to, all of them will tell you the same thing. None of them are gonna to talk to you and say, yeah, you should continue deals with the Islamic regime. None of them are gonna tell you, um, remove the sanctions, and hurts the people. Yes, it does hurt the people, it hurts the regime more. None of them are gonna tell you, give $6 billion for hostages and leave some behind to die. So, so which one you reach out to, and we have plenty, we have Uh, people in the media, we have people uh, in arts and everything that you can reach out to. And for me, it is important that we give them an outlet, not just in the media, but we give them an outlet in Congress to talk there about the policies. We have uh, institutions like the FDD who have fantastic policies over there. They have to be included in whatever next administration there is, they have to be included to change the Iran policy. But what I think and I'm saying that as the daughter of a hostage in Iran, is more important or the first step before we can change Iran policy is change international policy on hostage-taking. We don't have a global approach to hostage-taking. And these tyrants of the world, be it the Islamic regime of Iran, be it Hamas, be it Russia or China, Venezuela, you name them, are looking at each other and seeing how they can pressure Western governments into compliance by taking hostages. This is a major problem. When it is not addressed the right way, they're using hostages to blackmail us, and they've been successfully doing that. What we need as a number one step is a global task force that takes all of the hostages of the Western countries into one pot. So for the Islamic regime, it wouldn't matter if they take a German hostage or an American hostage, they will get sanctions, pressure, whatever it is from all of these countries, from the European countries, from Canada, from Australia, from the US, all of them will systematically increase the sanctions, increase the pressure, withdraw from Iran, stop uh, the money influx, take out their people out of the embassy, you you name it. It has to be systematic pressure to stop this because the regime 44 years ago started off with hostage taking for a reason. Remember, Mm -hmm. they took the entire US uh, embassy hostage. It worked. That's why Hamas took 250 uh, hostages. It mm-hmm. works. It puts a pressure on our governments that care about individuals. We should, right? If your dad or your daughter or somebody is held hostage by terrorists, you want them to do everything. But there has to be a systematic way to get them out with pressure and give them consequences of what they're doing instead of rewarding them. So mm-hmm. my argument is go there first, the hostage um, policy first, and then we can continue that.
1: Okay, great. All right, uh, Dr. Ferris, I uh, I want to uh, give you a chance to uh, talk about the importance of the Abraham Accord and how that policy uh, would have completely changed the complexion of what's going on and why it's important. And I'm doing a little plug here for uh, a good conservative to get be the next president of the United States. We know we've got stolen elections. We know there's a lot of uh, things going on in our country that are very, very bad. But every American ought to be voting with their with their vote and with their checkbook. That that's how our system works. Um, mm-hmm. And the
2: Abraham Accords elements existed always, meaning in the Middle East you had of course Israel, and Israel always sought peace. Uh, They have actually let go of the Sinai, remember in 1977, and uh, the late President uh, Sadat accepted the deal and there was peace. They have done so with Jordan, they tried to do so even with Yasser Arafat, the PLO, the Oslo agreement. It did not work, but Israel always wanted peace because that's the next logical step in their uh, In their historical times, the problem on the other side was that the radicals and the radicals in this case, I call them all jihadists, but the radicals are the Islamic Republic of Iran, and in general terms, the Muslim Brotherhood regimes, Taliban, Morsi, uh, you know, when Nahda was in power in, in, uh, in Tunisia, so on and so forth. So what has happened over a decade is that these nations before the United States understood, because of the comparison with how life is here. So it's really like 48,000 graduates from Saudi Arabia went back to Saudi Arabia after having living the American life. Say 10% of them are jihadists, possible, right? So then 90% of them were the ones who actually helped this great reformer, Muhammad bin Salman, who has been able to break down the rule of the Wahhabis, I wrote a whole book about the Wahhabis and when I met the ministers of Salman here in in New York in 2016 and 17, they told me, we know you wrote about the Wahhabis who attacked Saudi Arabia, but it's a new one emerging now. Can you help us, I'm just revealing something new. Can you help us communicate with the Trump administration? Can you tell us if the Trump administration is willing to sponsor? So don't be surprised but the actual call came from the Middle East. But thankfully there was an administration that said, okay, I'm ready to sponsor. I had long meetings with the leaders of the UAE and they are visionaries. And there is a long story. I know we we only have a few minutes, but the leaders of the UAE have actually told me the story for why they came to the Abraham Accord. Of course, with the Israelis and the United States. It looks like their ancestor was born and raised grand-grandfather in a hospital in the middle of the desert between the UAE and Oman, which was managed by Baptists, by missionaries. And that whole debate and discussion, they did not officially change religion, obviously not, Mm -hmm. but there was a different perception versus the Wahhabis who were ruling with the Muslim Brotherhood in Arabia and in Egypt. So there is a deep, deep movement in the Arab world for reform and there is also a deep movement in the whole region for economic success. Trump understood that. Trump is the man of the economic financial success. Uh, success. So he told me when I came for the first briefing, show me, I started to talk about principles. He said, no, no principles, show me on a map. So I displayed a map and then he understood where he's gonna place his decisions. And I realized why, why this man use maps? Because he's a real state strategist. He understands the balance of power and who's who and what. So the the, the Abraham Accords were about to open a new era in the Middle East, not just peace. It's really collaboration. It's really what happened between the UAE, Dubai, and Israel. And when the Gaza matter will finish, I think the Abraham Accords will come back, will rise, will succeed, and there will be a real peace post-jihadi peace will reign in the Middle East.
1: Well, as a matter of fact, I think that what you're talking about is exactly what we want to see all over the world, and that is the peace-loving, normal people of the world who are not radicals, who do do not have this, uh, share this radical ideology either way. Anyway, we just want to live in peace. We want to be able to raise our families. We we want to be able to uh, share wonderful times with our grandchildren, with our children. Uh, Giselle, this is your situation. You just want to be reunited with your father. It's time for the adults to take over the system, and it's time for the adults to throw the bums out that want to radicalize and want to destroy everything that makes this country great. Please. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, Let me add one thing about Iran, is that this movement, this youth and women movement in Iran, if they are successful, and Giselle is asking us, asking Mm -hmm. America, talk to us, because we are the future. You'll be talking to the future. Why do you send money to the people who are looking at the past, medieval? And if they change, if Iran change, Iran will be one of the best successful partner in the Abraham Accord, even more than all other Arabs. And then imagine the kind of Middle East you're going to get. Do you agree, Giselle?
3: Yes, I was just going to say, if we have a second... We're not just the future, we're also the past, Uh, Iran, the Persian, I was just going to say for a second, Um, 6,000 years or more, we are, Cyrus the Great invented the human rights, so we've been there at a Mm -hmm. time where we had everything, we had an empire, we we were the world power, we had freedom, we set people free, and then we witnessed how it was destroyed through extremists, through the Marxists, to that movement that took us over, and how the left underestimated that. Nobody thought this would happen. And turned this empire, what we had, this freedom, into this hell that we just had. So everything that you're doing right now, that we're seeing in America right now, happened so long ago in inside of Iran. So we are screaming so loud because we saw it and felt it and are telling you this is what's happening.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, um, I, I need to remind our viewers that uh, chess and algebra and so many wonderful inventions and so many wonderful things originated in Iran. So,
2: but uh, I, have to, I have to defend the colors of Phoenicia, my ancestors, <laughs> who at least at least gave the alphabet. <laughs> so it's in Iran that gave ninety percent, and the Phoenicians ten percent.
1: That's wonderful. <laughs> well. Uh, Please, thank you again for being our guest. We've got to move on to the next program, but I want to thank you again. And please, uh, may I contact you uh, off the air to establish and maybe uh, set some other venues that we can do?
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
1: (laughs) Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much. I want to uh, thank our viewers for joining us. Join us again on Tuesday morning for Connecting the Dots, and join us again next Sunday for Connecting the Dots. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills
0: of Tennessee Across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, and New York to L.A., where there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say.